Welcome back to another episode of Somewhere Between, a podcast made by Asian adoptees for Asian adoptees. Hi guys, welcome back to another interview episode of Somewhere Between. I'm Amy, and today we're joined by a special guest, Spencer. I didn't realize how powerful it would be to sit in a classroom where the majority of people in the class looked like me or at least shared some form of cultural background. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first day sitting there and like admittedly it was on Zoom, but even so like being taught by an Asian American professor Mm -hmm. and then also looking at the screen where almost all of my classmates were also Asian or Asian American was so powerful just to finally be in a room where I wasn't the minority. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, I think, because I remember the first moment that I was, you know, in a, you just in a crowd, not even like learning and engaging, knowing that this was going to be, you know, the future for the next couple of months. The first time I was in a crowd and I was no longer the, the minority. And that was extremely impactful, let alone having, you know, an entire class set up where you're learning about, you know, what that means to you and what that means as a whole in society with the people that also reflect you. That's definitely something unique and special to remember for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also with academia, it's like, I think in academia, people of color are so vastly unrepresented. And if you Mm -hmm. just look at like faculty, the reality is like there are far fewer POC faculty than there should be. Yeah. Um, and apparently, like I was talking to a professor who does research on this and he was saying like, there are very few tenured Asian American professors. Mm-hmm. And like he hit part of his research is exploring like, why is that? How do we mm-hmm. change that? Right. Um, but I think like, especially in academia, because that is, I think growing up, like there's such an emphasis on education, at least how I grew up, mm-hmm. that seeing myself in, in academia, learning about my experiences and not just my experiences but the whole history of asian americans in this country was so powerful because i learned about so many events that i didn't know asian americans were even a part of because they were explicitly excluded from the narrative and that was a very purposeful thing on the part of you know the people writing history and i think it's interesting because you know we explored this idea of how asians are foreignized even Mm -hmm. when you're an asian american you're so like asians are consistently foreignized in a way that makes us seem like we never are going to belong in the u.s even though we have far longer of a history than i think people realize in this country and i think that is on the one hand it's really powerful to actually under like learn about the theories behind that and Mm -hmm. hear you know hear yourself represented in academia and look at a text and be like oh this is my experience and like mm-hmm. someone has written about this and now it is it is somewhere in the academic record mm-hmm. um but i think it's also just powerful because it's you know you're hearing about the history of your like i guess for me it's the history of hearing about people who are like me and mm-hmm. seeing that you know with critical ethnic studies i didn't know that came out of the third world liberation front and the strike um in california and hearing about that was incredible and it was it was just so powerful to hear that like this was it was a coalition of people that came together and i think that especially with the asian american communities like we forget that our representation comes out of the work of black americans and that you know it it took coalition building it required building across communities who have faced discrimination albeit Mm -hmm to different degrees, but have faced discrimination to create the representation we have now. 
And I remember even just like with watching Crazy Rich Asians, like I went to the theater with a couple of friends, um, some mm -hmm. of whom were Asian Americans, and one of whom was also an adoptee, and we were sitting in the theater and the movie opened. And when that, when like Crazy Rich Asians flashed on the screen, I remember sitting there being like, this is a historical moment, at least for me. Yeah. Like this is the one of the first times I've ever seen a predominantly all Asian cast on essentially like the silver screen. Yeah. And it was, I remember sitting there and just feeling, I didn't know what I was feeling, but it was such a powerful emotion and experience. And, you know, Crazy Rich Asians definitely has some problems. There is a lack of representation of anyone who's not East Asian, especially considering it's supposedly in Singapore, which, like, you know, yeah. is not just East Asians. Right. Um, so I think, like, obviously there are a lot of problems with that movie in itself. That being said, I still think it was a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. I think then it goes back to the conversation of, you know, in order to achieve representation, we don't want it to be staggered like i don't want it to be like oh east asians first and then southeast asians and then right. south asians like no why can't it be everyone being lifted up at once because right. you know if we're going to rally around the identity of being asian and asian american that means we are all asian and asian american and even within that obviously there are certain certain experiences that are more specific to certain people's backgrounds or cultures mm -hmm. but it shouldn't have to be a stepping stone to get everyone represented it should be we're doing this together and i think like that ultimately movement. goes back to the idea exactly it should be one movement to represent us all and that's not an easy task by any means like asia is a continent it's very diverse there's a lot of different people in in, in asia in general but at the same time i think it goes back to the idea of coalition building and you know i think history and you know certain certain institutions that have tried to enforce racism continue to divide us in specific ways to prevent coalition building because they're they know that if ultimately we all united like we would essentially be unstoppable yeah for sure no i definitely yeah. sorry i've just given me a lot to think about um and i think that these, these kinds of conversations they're they're not held often you know, um, because yeah. I think people are always worried about what other people might think or just, you know, they, they tend to make waves as people say, you know, don't make waves, which yeah. kind of goes with the model minority myth that exists. Um, but yeah. I think that there are conversations that need to happen a lot more and a lot in a lot more open spaces. And you know, I always hear the phrase, you know, if you're comfortable in all the conversations you have, you're not having the right conversation that, that this kind of this is one of those things that it's not a comfortable thing to talk about, especially, you know, right now in the times that we're experiencing, but these conversations yeah. about, you know, how representation isn't full representation if it does just a, a fraction of a population, but they're extremely powerful and they, they need to happen so that, like you said, so an entire movement can occur other than, you know, little blips of things to celebrate, which I think are also important, as you said, but also it, they're blips. And they, it, there's been a, before, you know, COVID hit and everything, um, there was this going momentum, I think, of Asian representation and Asian pride, especially um, with Parasite. But again, it was, it was very East Asian dominant and not, you know, yeah. vast Asia and Asian Americans as a, as a whole body, you know? Right. And I think that it's also like going back to what you said about, you know, if you're having conversations where you're just comfortable all the time, you're not having the right ones. I think it goes back to the idea of like, 
think um, in Americana, we read about, so I read Americana in high school and I remember reading, mm. I didn't really sleep in high school. It's getting a little better. I still don't sleep enough in college, um, but I remember it was like <laughs> 3 a.m. I was reading the assigned chapter for class the next day. And she, I think, I believe it's one of the blog posts that the main character is talking, um, uses to like tell the, the, sorry. It was a blog post that the main character had written in the novel that the author used to sort of express from a more like, from that, it was more expressing that character's own like rationale um, mm -hmm. using these blog posts. And in, I believe it was a blog post, but in that section, she was saying like in America or in the US, it's almost like race Olympics. Like people treat it like race Olympics, even though it shouldn't yeah. be. And the idea of like, who's the most oppressed, who has the most, who has like the, the most like part. right to speak on. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a huge issue because that was like something that really, really bothered me, especially in subtle Asian traits that I saw was the way that people were treating Black Lives Matter versus COVID. And it was the whole thing of like, I remember reading a post where someone had posted like, you know, it's really, really it, like, it's really nice to see people posting about Black Lives Matter and seeing the support in this community of Asian and Asian Americans. But someone posted back a whole thing and it, it caused a whole bunch of threads about like, why should I stand up for Black Lives Matter? Like, it's not like Black people are standing up for Asians when COVID was happening. And like, you know, we've just experienced all of this violence and racism because of COVID and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, Having experienced that, though, why would you want someone else to experience that? Wouldn't right. that further motivate you to stand up for Black Lives Matter? Because, A, like, it's not a political movement. It is a social obligation. Right, like, exactly. it, it's about believing that people are inherently equal and that, mm -hmm. you know, people shouldn't be treated worse than someone else simply because of the color of their skin, especially by these institutions. And I don't know. I think that to me was so frustrating because... It was like, you know, we owe a lot of what we've accomplished in this country to the work of Black Americans, especially Black female Americans. Like, mm -hmm. Black women are so undervalued in all of it, all that they've contributed to society and civil rights. And I think that the Asian community often forgets how much we owe to the Black community because we're not taught about these things in education, because it's not talked about in communities. And I think that that was a thing that my friends and I had to talk through was like how do we feel about what's going on with all of these things like how do we come to terms with the fact that like yes we experience racism as Asian Americans but we also are inherently racist towards black people because of how we've been raised because really of what problem. we've been told yeah, exactly. yeah and how do we you know how do we unlearn these unconscious thoughts or actions because mm -hmm. you know ultimately they are still racist and there's still things that we need to confront and work right. on and the, the same thing with reparations like yes, we're Asian Americans. Yes, we've had face discrimination. And like, yes, there are often, especially for people who are first general income, like, you know, you're mm -hmm. experiencing things on a much harder level because you're also experiencing class discrimination. But how do we also, you know, how do we participate in reparations? How do we contribute to this? Because the reality is like, we still have that obligation. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot of conversations around this that need to happen that I think so many people are like, but I've been hurt personally. And it's like, yes, and that's important to acknowledge and work through, but your hurt and your experiences with being discriminated against don't invalidate other people's experiences as well. And it's not race Olympics, or it's not oppression Olympics. It is literally, mm -hmm. how can we band together yeah. to support each other, to help undo these like systemic 
like systemic racism and all of these institutions of power that are specifically made to divide us as people of color so that we don't band together and basically show white people the power of minorities. Right, exactly. And I, I, I talk about this a lot in my, my personal life. I think that there's this idea, you know, one person says that I'm tired. I stayed up till 2 a.m. Another person says, oh, you think you're tired? I'm exhausted. I stayed up till 4 a.m. And it's like, well, just because you're both like, you're, you can both be tired. Like there's not a finite amount yeah. of tired in the world. There's not a finite amount of sadness or pain or any of those awful things or any of those positive things. So just because you know, one group is experienced, it doesn't mean that another group can't experience that as well. Just because the Asian American community was hurting because of the COVID doesn't mean that, you know, people of color, people, specifically Black people, haven't experienced all of this thing as well. It, it just means that we're both going through a tough time. So why don't we band together and support each other instead of trying to, like you said, compete in the oppression Olympics of, you know, oh, you had a bad time. I had a bad time too. We can all have a bad time. It's fine. This is America. We can all have a bad time sometimes. <laughs> you are it's, free to have a bad time. Yeah, you're free to have a bad time. And it doesn't mean that other people don't have a bad time too. Um, and there's, you know, we could, I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long, forever, maybe, maybe one day on this podcast, but th there's a long history of, while also extremely atrocious racism from the Asian community towards the Black community in particular, there's also a history of the Asian community and the Black community standing together in support of each other. And I think we need to go back to those things because, you know, there was a whole movement of, I think, um, Yellow Peril supports Black power. That was a really big movement that people don't talk about. Um, and I think, like you said, once we stop letting the systems that are put in place to divide us and not see, you know, the, the power that we could have as a unit, I think. Once we can see past those and start building towards a better future as, as a collective of people who are oppressed, I think that that's where real change is going to occur. Exactly. And I think it's, I mean, I think it, it's hard because it means confronting the fact that Asian Americans inherently have privilege over Black Americans. And yeah. I would say also like Hispanic people in this country because, Absolutely. you know, we do have a level of privilege, but I think it's also, it goes both ways in that like, there's definitely a lot of racism that is normalized against Asian Americans and Asians yeah. across everyone. Like I think racism against Asian Americans is so normalized that things will happen and people won't bat an eye. And exactly. it's it's honestly disgusting and it's so frustrating because I think that there's a lot of work to do within all communities towards other communities because, yeah. you know, I think every community has its own prejudices, prejudices. I don't know what the, I guess it's just yeah. prejudices. All right. <laughs> <laughs> every community has their own prejudices against other communities because, I mean, that's, that is, I mean, it goes back to all these evolutionary things, but like, that's just a fact. Like that is, that is a fact and that, that just means that we all have work to do in terms of confronting our biases and trying to unlearn what is not like what is inappropriate and what is racist towards other people. And I think that people don't want to do like people, if you are oppressed, you don't want to think that someone else is more oppressed than you because you, you don't want to have to, to engage in that because it's hard. It's, I mean, it is emotionally draining. It's also, it, it requires being vulnerable, but also being willing to listen and, you know, sometimes hear that you are part of the group of people that have been oppressing someone else. And I think that like, for me, being in the trans community, like trans women, specifically black trans women are 
by far the most vulnerable, I think, when it comes to the trans community, because, you know, if you look at the statistics of who's murdered, who's trans each year, it's majority black trans women. And it's just, it's so frustrating when I see like non-black trans people being racist, because I'm like, you also have to remember, like, not just the trans community, but the LGBTQ plus community as a whole, we owe everything to black trans women. And, you know, that's something that we don't learn about ever. Like you, I, I learned about it because of the internet, but like, yeah, it's not something we formally learn about because LGBTQ people are, God forbid, mentioned in a classroom. Um, so I think so much of our histories as minorities is just, it's not learned by people. And to be fair, like learning does happen outside the classroom and people should be trying to engage on their own. I think that's super important as well. But obviously not everyone's going to do that. And especially people that aren't of a minority identity, you know, it's the kind of issue of how do you make them care? And the reality is if you learn about it in mainstream education and for those who are go who are able and are going to mean to, to school, um, that's like, that's how you first get exposed. And that's often what makes people more interested in learning more. And so I do think it's important to have both learning outside the classroom and on your own, because it also gives you, you can then learn and work through it at your own pace but it's also important to have it within those institutions because i think that you need to work from both within and outside the institutions to make real change um and so i don't know i think that it's about being willing to confront the fact that there's usually like even if you are somehow the most discriminated person in the world like you still have your own prejudices and biases against other groups of people and so you know working through that is important because Otherwise, if you don't acknowledge any of those, then you're never going to recognize them as a problem. And if you don't recognize those as a problem, you're not going to understand why Black Lives Matter is important and, you know, why these kind of social movements are important. They're not going to seem that important to you if you don't recognize that you have these biases and prejudices. Right. No, exactly. And I think that there's this um, this idea that we have to learn, like you said, you know, we have to do the education out classroom outside of what we're traditionally taught, you know, in higher education institutions, or even at the baseline of public education institutions. But, you know, I remember when Black Lives Matter was, you know, mainstream, as people, you know, would say, um, even not a movement, yeah. it's, you know, but um, that people would say, you know, educate me on your history, educate, well, that that's in itself problematic in that you're asking people who are already, like we talked about earlier, under an emotional labor or emotional load to try to educate their own. They didn't get that education in the classroom. Um, if you're any kind of, you know, minority group, in, at least in America in particular, we don't talk, we only talk about the winners of history, quote unquote. Um, so if you're, if you're queer, if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're any kind of not, you know, Hispanic, any not American, strictly speaking, you need to do that own education outside. And there's, there's an idea that we should learn about our own identity, which is absolutely true. We should do that. But then we should also learn about all the other marginalized around us to get the big picture and see how they all interweave together, because that's what history is. It's interwoven cultures and histories and connections. Exactly. And I think this idea of intersectionality is more important than ever in this current period where we're having these conversations. Um, and I think that it's also a matter of like, I think there needs to be conversations about what does that term actually mean? Because I think people throw it around all the time, but their conversation itself mm -hmm. isn't actually about the intersectionality portion. It's just 
breaking down it's sort of talking disconnectedly about each experience in their background and for me like being queer and trans and asian are all inherently wrapped up in each other with the same thing of being adopted like i think that yes mm -hmm. i would have been afraid to come out to my parents to some level maybe not afraid but i would have been nervous to come out to my parents in some level um about being trans regardless of if i was adopted but that is also exacerbated by the fact that I was adopted because abandonment issues are a much larger portion, a larger fear in my life and my experience. But at the same time, like as an Asian American growing up, there are so few Asian Americans in media. There's so little representation, there's so little good representation. And there's even fewer like role models when it comes to being queer or trans and Asian American. And so these things are all related. And if you go really deep, and I think Ace talked about this a bit in his interview with the idea of like when he's looking for a therapist, you know, he wants to hit all these criteria and is that too many? And it's the same thing of like, I talked to a friend of mine and he was saying like, you know, it must be difficult for you to find someone that you very holistically relate to because of how, how many different identities you have in the sense of like, I, I don't think I've ever met someone who's adopted, queer, trans, has two dads, like grew up in a gay community um, and is also Asian. Like that's a lot of things to grow up a lot with. To and, I'm, yeah. uh, and I'm very grateful and very happy to have all of these experiences even if they're not easy. Um, but I think like they all build on each other. They're all re related to each other. And the way that I interact with one isn't disconnected from my other identities. And it's, it's like when I look for my birth family, I have a lot of trepidation about, you know, are they going to accept me as I am? Because like my foster family, I think the issues in China, like the idea of being transgender just is not a thing. And it even for, I, I so it's not that it's not a thing, but it's not a very big idea. So there are a lot of people who just don't understand the concept at all. And so for me, it's like trying to find my birth family. Are they going to understand? Are they going to respect that? And like with my foster family, you know, they love me. They still call me Jiajia, which means older sister in Chinese. They still use my original Chinese name, which I had later changed because it was a feminine name. And it's, you know, it's difficult. It is difficult in that sense of like, how do I explain this to someone or do I just live with it? And like, I'm comfortable enough at the point where I'm like, whatever, like, that's fine. It doesn't really bother me, especially because it's not like I'm flying every summer to see them or anything. Right. So it's not, it's more like over WeChat we talk. But it, it is still then a question because I think this also came up very early in the podcast of like having of male adoptees and, you know, that a lot of, I think, especially with China, it's a, it's far less common. And for me, like, I hadn't really thought about it till later because, you know, my brother's a cis male adoptee. But for me growing up, like, like in the past, it made sense, you know, you're a female adoptee because I was presenting as female. But now, as someone who identifies definitely more with being masked, but also with being non-binary, it's a it's an interesting question when people are confused because they're like, oh, I don't know that many male adoptees. And it's sort of like, well, like you go back in the whole thing. And so I inherently have to sort of talk about the fact that I am trans just to explain, you know, my adoption identity. Right. And like I'm luckily, like I am the kind of person where A, I don't know if you've noticed, I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like B, I've talked a lot about these topics to the point where I'm very comfortable talking about most of them. Right. But at the same time, like that was something I had to learn. And that was sort of a forced learning because it was something that inevitably came up. Right. And so like, I am very comfortable talking about that luckily, but there are problems, there's got to be other people who are not comfortable. And so to inherently have to explain those kind of things can be very difficult and put someone in a position mm -hmm. that they're not prepared or comfortable being in. Right. They're in a state of perpetually outing them, essentially. Exactly.
Thank you again for joining us today, Spencer. It's been amazing having you. I love the conversation we've been having. And I hope hope to have you on the podcast again sometime for a, maybe a topical episode. Um, but for everyone listening, if you're interested in participating in one of our episodes, you can email us at somewhere.between.podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to join our Instagram family at somewherebetween.fam and stay connected with updates, casting calls, and a whole lot more. See you guys next time. <laughs>